Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to The Word Podcast. I'm David Hepworth and I'm joined this week by Mark Allen. And, and straight up a plane from Naples, we have... Paul Denoyer. <laughs> look, look, rich, with his rich Italian town that he had. So what, 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 what have you doing in Naples? How exciting. I, I was there just uh, for the annual, the annual family um, trip. And the town isn't actually a town, it's just where all the mosquito bites join. Oh, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I had a few days in right the Scottish Highlands, so I can tell you about midges, and, you know, they're joining up uh, similarly with me. Podcast with a difference this week, chaps, um, because we've got a sponsor on board for this one, which we're thrilled right. about. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, Universal Music uh, celebrating, marking the release of the Rolling Stones' The Biggest Bang, four DVD set... Uh, a box set of, uh, of material from their 2005 and 2006 Mammoth World Tour. So, as you can imagine, there's a concert filmed in Texas, uh, on the Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, and in China and Japan and so forth. And uh, I, I, fascinating, actually, I sat down last night with this. And, of course, I, I don't know what you guys are like with, uh, with uh, rock and roll DVDs, but I always go straight to the extras. Do you do this? Oh, well, I certainly do with movie ones. Oh, right. Because they, yeah, maybe I should do with rock and roll ones as well, actually. But the movie ones, you then get the, 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 the director uh, weeping about that to one shot eight or seven times and some of the other history. Oh, well, well, this, I, I, the thing that always fascinates me is just how many behind-the-scenes on tour uh, little documentaries have we seen, Paul, in, 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 in all these years of wasting our time listening to pop music? Millions, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Do we ever get fed up with them? Uh, I got fed up with them uh, after a week of reviewing it. I thought I've done some tough gigs on behalf of this magazine and my time, but reviewing the DVDs one week. Oh, it got to you, didn't this, it? This is beyond, this is beyond the, you know, above and beyond the call. Really. Something snapped. I mean, rock, rock, rock video has always been a despised, justly despised art. <laughs> And, you know, what, what is the rock DVD but the rock video with slightly sharper 
uh, clarity, but the, the very few of them have any kind of <laughs> oh, well, space on. Well, let me tell you, this, but this, is, this, this is a collector's yeah, item. Yeah. This is a collector's item, because the thing about the Rolling Stones tours is they just get bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. So the sheer scale throws up situations you've never seen before. You know, such as this concert that they did on Copacabana Beach. Oh, with the 1.2 million people. Well, they're they're there beforehand, you know, and Mick is in the hotel across the road from the Copacabana Beach. He's staying in the Copacabana Beach Hotel. And the tour manager keeps coming over with little video cameras to show him footage of how many people he's going to be playing in front of, you know. And they're just trying to estimate. Does it make you feel better or worse? Well, he actually says at one point, it could make you nervous, this kind of thing. Which I actually think is complete tosh, because I don't think it makes any difference whether you're playing in front of 200 or 2 million, you know. But they estimate 1.2 million on Copacabana Beach. And to give you an idea of the scale of this, how did they get the band from the hotel... To the gig. Sir, sir, I know the answer. Go on. Mark Allen, you are the best. A bridge. They built a bridge. Across the road. See, we published a picture of it in the magazine, actually. They built a bridge across the road because, to be fair, it's a good 50 yards to walk. (laughs) (laughs) They may have had a travelator on it as well, I should imagine. And and this ferried them, didn't it, from their gigantic suites onto the city. And the stage, if I'm right in saying, was at least. Two stories high. They built a stage yeah. specially for this show. But it was, it was verti- it had vertical stories, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable just looking at the scale of these things and just watching that, you know, there's, there's 260 people travel with the Rolling Stones. That's direct crew with the Rolling Stones, right? And, and amongst them is, is a woman whose job it is to just fight for kind of wardrobe and dressing room space in wherever you're going to be. And the scene of her arguing with the sponsors over who's going to get the most lavatories, yeah. is it the Rolling Stones or is it the sponsors, is an absolute pearl. And, and the bit where <laughs> she goes around laying out Keith's dressing room, OK? Yeah. So what do you have to put in Keith's dressing room? What's the first thing you get out of the box, Paul, in Keith's dressing room? I'd like to think. <laughs> Traditionally, it was a boom box, wasn't it? Oh, well, yeah, I think that's already there. His, his, he, he wouldn't go into a room unless his arrival was preceded by a gigantic ghetto blast. The sound of tackling is pretty far off. <laughs> that's right. No, well, actually, it's a, put a, a sort of scarf over it's the a, line. It's a skull, is the no, first no, thing. Skull. skull is the first thing to come out of the packing to wel- case. To welcome the To old make boy. Keith feel <laughs> complete, <laughs> completely at home. Um, so they take us through the various different dressing room areas. And they actually show us, Paul, I know this would thrill you, because I know how, how you know, fastidious you are about, about gentlemen's outfitting, OK? <laughs> they, go, they go into Charlie Watts's area, right? Oh, yeah, well, Charlie... And what, do, what does Charlie travel with? A Corby trousers? <laughs> no, he probably has people who actually do the pressing for him. He probably <laughs> does. Corby himself. No, but listen, she, she leans down, camera pans down, and she, she pulls out what I can only describe as a luxury sock drawer. Superb. A sock drawer. And out comes serried ranks of different coloured, presumably box-fresh, brand-new, pet-watched. Oh, I better catch for it as well. It's kind of yellow, there's pale blue and all these things. That's Charlie's sock drawer. Just he likes absolutely everything, you know, in, in perfect array. And what does Mick need? Now, this is, you know, this is to do with his fitness regime. What does Mick require in terms of dressing room space? He needs a running track. Oh, my God. But Indoor in a hotel. They mark out, they mark out like 50 metres yeah. so that Mick can run 
for 20 minutes before he goes on stage. To oh. get to get in, himself pumped. Sorry, let me. I want to be absolutely clear. It's not one of those machines that you run on thing. No, it's, it's not a travelator. No, it's not a travel. It has to run. He, he dashes, dashes back. No, it's let me be His room has to be fifty yards long. Well, it, it, they, they find a dressing room area, and it's hidden. There's a curtain so that nobody can see this undignified figure. Sixty bucks, however old you are, Mick, tearing back and forth up here. You know. Um, just getting himself completely ready to go on stage. And yet the contrast is really, it's really poignant if you think back to the previous Stones um, videos, DVDs, like um, Stones at uh, High Park was re-released on DVD. Oh, right. Yes. And of course that simply um, involves Mick walking out of his house and Cheney walking Chelsea, yeah. getting into the back of the car, yeah. going ten minutes up the road to High Park, getting out of the car, onto the stage. That's all there is to it. You know, Absolutely. Like, that's how it's changed. So listen, that's the Rolling Stones, the biggest bang, four DVDs, and there's an opportunity for you to win one of these, uh, win one of these sets, and the way we're going to do this, inspired by the England football team's glorious media initiative <laughs> at, the, at the last World Cup, dropped into the cut and thrust of debate in the next 40 minutes will be four Rolling Stones song, song titles. Dropped in as naturally as we can make it, okay? <laughs> this is going to have a terrible effect on us, you know. We're going to, going to be picking you, picking trying, you a... trying very hard to. Uh, no, I can't say anything about that. Yeah, you want to talk. Yeah. Don't mention whips or anything no, like no, that. No, you know, no. you'd be drawn well, it completely the wrong way. So anyway, yeah, okay. they're going to be dropped in throughout the podcast, and then at the end, you just write them down, pencil and paper, boys and girls. Write them down. And, uh, and we'll give you the address to send them to uh, later on. And, uh, and one of those uh, biggest banks could be on its way to you. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So, anyway, what else have we got to talk about today? Bob Dylan. I was rung I have to go across, actually, on Friday. Rung up by the BBC. BBC Breakfast Television. They rang me, too. Okay. Who did the ring? What time did the ring? Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Seven o'clock in the morning. Oh, well, I, I, I was way down the list. I was when, long after you. When the BBC rings, I always say the same thing. I say, who's died? Because usually what's happened is, you know, I remember the small faces has turned his toes up. And that's, that's when they get in touch. <laughs> Quickly, can you come on and do it over? So tell... No, this t- was Dylan, wasn't it? This is Bob Dylan. So you get a researcher saying... Oh, Bob Dylan's going to remake... You know, he's allowing Mark Ronson to remix one of his tunes. We think this is an absolutely fascinating story. Will you come on the couch and talk about it? And I, was, I got a bit cross, actually. Oh, God, what did you, what did you say? Because I was terribly friendly. It's oh, it was a really good idea. I did? Yeah, I did, yeah. Why was it? What, a good idea to remix the record? Yeah, I thought it was, actually, yeah. I, I couldn't see anything wrong with it. I mean, I would, the thing I disagree about is if they are remixing a Dylan record to try and attract an audience of teenagers or people in their early 20s, then giving it a kind of hip-hop makeover is probably the worst possible way of doing it. That. Is. And also, the only reason that teenagers and 20-year-olds, and I live in a house, or did live in a house, anyway, with two, my kids are 21 and 23 now, but they, who absolutely adore Bob Dylan, is that they, they like him for the very precise the reasons that they don't like a lot of hip-hop, which is, it appears to be full of authenticity and uh, a genuine form of emotional connection and the very uncomplicated songs are just one bug and a guitar singing Moonshine. Yeah. So yeah. what you don't want is somebody making it, trying to give it a sort of, you know, modern uh, twist. It's but then again, yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, I must, I must admit, I'm dying to hear it. It's just the combination yeah. of Mark, what Mark Ronson has done with other people. And, and the song itself is a really interesting one. It's, isn't it... Uh, most likely you go your way, I'll go mine. Yeah. Uh, you know, semi-obscure Dylan song, but as I think Mark Ronson has pointed out, 
it's got a really strange beat to it to begin with. It's got this sort of funny kicking um, beat which uh, lends itself to um, a modern interpretation that doesn't uh, render the original complete travesty. So I think, I think the, the end might will justify the means or not, really. You know, the principle doesn't bother me in the least. Because they do it well. Because these things don't have a terribly good track record, though, don't, do they, Mark? I mean, because, uh, you know, the Beatles love, you know, much trumpeted, but uh, did it give much satisfaction in the end? Well, you can't always get what you want. I mean, George Martin went in there and... Uh, tried to do what I suppose uh, Go Home Productions had, uh, had done so brilliantly. Go Home Productions, I think we talked about in the magazines a lot, <laughs> did these fantastic, illegal remixes of the Beatles. In fact, what they did is they married the Beatles to uh, the Bee Gees. The, and, Beach, uh, Boys, the Beach Queen, Boys, Queen, Blondie, all that kind of radio. stuff. It was absolutely fantastic. And I suppose what restricted George Martin was he had to go back and use only Beatles material and also had to get it okay by members of the Beatles. Uh, and so it didn't quite have the kind of um, the, the, the warmth and, and, and thrust of some of those other ones, or the ingenuity. You've got to be able to knock this stuff about, though, haven't you, really, without worrying about who you're going to upset. I think they, so. They, well, the Beatles thing was just too cautious. Um, and, and in fact, they did the thing, same thing with Let It Be. Remember, they did Let they It did, Be yeah. Naked. Yeah. Uh, and it was just too... You just thought, what's the point, really? But the, I thought the Elvis Presley one was a success in its own right, the, uh, the dance remix. Of, uh, a little less conversation. Little less conversation. Uh, commercially, it was a great success. Yeah. A huge success. Don't you think that worked? A little less conversation for me. It worked because I'd never heard the song before. It was it was completely fresh. Well, it's, Presley it's, it's, it's a bit like the idea of using this particular Dylan song. In that, had you gone for something that was absolutely ingrained into everybody's memory, they would think it was sacrosanct. And that was the thing that I, I was interested in about the, the, the Beatles. I remember interviewing George Martin. And the big complaint was that people thought this was uh, to, to, their quote was painting a moustache on the Mona Lisa. Uh, yeah. I'm not quite sure what that means. I think I know what they meant, which was that you're well, taking something that's really sacrosanct. or Duchamp or some modern artist actually did this. And, uh, oh, painted yeah. the moustache on. Yeah, once he'd done it, everyone said, "Oh, oh Mark." Take your moustache off again, please. Nobody ever really bothered doing it again no. because the point had been made, such as it was, and yeah. that seems to be no point, really. No. And that's probably what will happen with this remix. But I'd make one point about Dylan, which is that which I, which I think is interesting that, that people think that Dylan's records are kind of carved in stone, and uh, that's what he'd worked up to the, the, the absolutely definitive final version of that thing that would be there forever. That's not the case. I've talked to people who've recorded with Bob Dylan and been in his band. They've all said the same thing consistently throughout his entire career, which he never really did more than two takes. So as far as he was concerned, his songs were, this doesn't sound too appallingly pretentious, were in a constant state of evolution. Hence, um, to a lot of people's uh, uh, great disappointment, he, he plays songs that he wrote in the 1960s in a completely different way now. Some of them are unrecognisable. But as far as he's concerned, the night they were recorded was just the version they played that night. Yeah. It happened to be distributed on tablets of stone, and it's the version that was on Blonde on Blonde or whatever. So it's kind of consistent with, with what he did, that he could take it and... You see, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're, we're the only people who've heard these things... Well, let me start that again. Our experience of a great Bob Dylan record is fundamentally different from Bob Dylan's experience of it, isn't it? Because we've listened to it millions of times. He hasn't, apart from the time he made it. Absolutely. That's the thing that struck me about going to see Paul McCartney a few years ago. Paul McCartney turned up on stage <coughs> with a bunch of young musicians yeah. Yeah. who'd all learnt the Beatles records yeah. in a way that the Beatles never learned them. Yeah. Yeah. The Beatles played them and then recorded them. Yeah. And then probably didn't listen to the record again. Yeah. These guys had sat there for 30 years working out exactly how to get, you know, whatever, well, the penny lanes. The most astonishing version of all, all that I felt was with, uh, with Blonde on Blonde, because I interviewed Al, Al Cooper, who was the musical arranger on Blonde on Blonde. I interviewed him for work about a year ago. And 
what he told me was that they were contracted to produce the record in a certain amount of time, and in those days you were not allowed to stay in the studio indefinitely. You know, you had your two and a half weeks or whatever. Dylan hadn't written half of the music, but this is the way he preferred to work. He had a, a piano moved into his upstairs room at great expense to inconvenience the hotel, and he would write songs on the piano in the daytime. Then Robbie Robinson would come to his room, he would teach him the song, whatever it be, Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, for example. He would teach him the chord sequence. He would then go downstairs, this is Dylan, and have a sleep, and then have something to eat, and then go to the studio at 9 o'clock at night, where the group, who had, this song wasn't even written uh, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, would have learnt the song, and they would routine the song three or four times and record it at 4 o'clock in the morning, and do exactly the same thing the next day with the next song. And, then, and when I realised that, and I, when I was a kid, I used to listen to those songs and think, it must have just been the culmination of months of thinking and work to produce this incredible arrangement. Yeah, it was a yeah, few, was few hours. Literally a few hours. Have you heard, did it, where did I hear recently that... Um, Amazing recording of uh, of like a Rolling Stone, where you can hear Al Cooper working his way to the organ, and you can hear the producer oh, asking what he's doing. The, uh, it's in the, uh, the documentary. It's in the Martin Scorsese film. It's just because because yeah. Al Cooper blagged his way to the session. All he yeah. ever, he knew to play how to play the guitar, yeah. but he fancied playing the organ, and he kept saying to Tom Wilson, "Let me play the organ." Play the organ, that's right. And they said, "No, you can't play the organ," and you hear them tuning up. And you can hear Tom Wilson going, what's, what's that guy doing says, there? What's he doing? That's right. <laughs> and Al Cooper has worked his way over to the organ, there to play the best-known organ yeah. part in popular music. But the extraordinary thing about it, when you listen to it, is that the organ, if this isn't uh, too technical, the organ comes in a half-beat behind the guitar chord. Because he's watching The reason else. is, he's waiting for them to form the guitar chord, so he knows what yeah, chord to play. Yeah. <laughs> everyone thought this was so brilliant, the off-beating of the organ part. You know? Wonderful stuff. It's incredible. Uh, I can't imagine George Michael turns out a record yeah, in that version. Go George Michael. Well, it's tradition. It's tradition. It is tradition. If Dave went to the city in Chapel, he'd look up and say, huh, imagine George Michael's trying to play. Such a bitch. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast... A way of life. One thing that's been uh, that's been exercising the readers on the website uh, recently that uh, did you see this thing that Yahoo Music came up with this poll that proved that the uh, the best name to have if you want to be a, a rock star was well I think it's Paul isn't it Paul? Oh, you got the list. Paul's got the list there. Go on, read us the list. The top ten pop names, and then we'll do the bottom. Okay, top. Uh, well, sort of on top. Paul, then John, then <laughs> David, then Brian, then George, then Mark. Then Tony, then Andy, and finally number ten is Shane. And how did they work that Shane? Out? How did the Shane suddenly get in there? Is that um, Boys Own and Well Does that mean the most popular? No, what they've done is they've, they've taken all the UK um, top twenty hits and they've worked out the Christian names of all the artists on these hits. It's a terrible job that someone actually <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> with a heavy heart you get up on Monday morning, which you so, so, so the success of Paul is probably attributable to the Beatles plus Paul McCartney and Wings and so on. Yeah. Uh, adding in uh, Paul. And members of the Beautiful South, probably. And, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, quite right. Yeah. And, uh, but what, what, what they have overlooked, actually, is that uh, Paul McCartney's uh, real name is James. Yes. And uh, Paul Weller's real name is John. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's thrown us both. Well, that's torn it. Right down the bottom of the list is probably Bono. You know the one Bono? No, no, yeah. yeah, Bono. There's only one Bono. Isn't Not it? his real name. No, <laughs> no, his real name is... Paul. 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 Oh, very oh, oh, so good. Right. So I think that kind of pushes we Pauls, us Pauls right up to the... It uh, does. Yeah. So on the, on the website, people were trying to work out if those are the most... 
common. <laughs> let me let me put it that way. Commons, common. uh, rock star names. What were what were the what are the least common? What are the least common? This is single use. Single use names. names, and it's kind of an interesting area. Actually, Shall I tell you my favourite. Go of on. Times a real name, I think. Go on. Unless someone wants to contest it, the drummer of Leonard Skinner was called Artemis Pyle. Spelled P-Y-L-E, I think. I looked him up. Artemis he he came in later, didn't he? He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't in the classic line no, no, okay. of the skin. <laughs> OK, Dave, so you wrote the skinhead before I was. He <laughs> <laughs> um, still flies the Confederate flag, of course. You know, you see, I'm not, I don't know. What was he post-plane crash skinhead? No, I think he was pre-plane crash I think he's in... Um, but he was the hairiest creature ever invented. He looked like a yeti. He had waist-length hair. He had longer hair even than the L... Uh, what are they called? I can't remember that. They called Alice. Alice Cooper's band. Do you remember then? They had waist-length Oh, Vincent Fernier had very, had very long. Now we're talking long, really long hair. Vincent Crane. Vincent Crane. Out of the out of the rooster. Longest hair ever, surely. Um, again, forgot his name. Played the piano with George Harrison. Stove by hand. Leon Russell. Leon Russell. Probably still is just as long, actually. This is a good game, but I'm just going to say, play the guitar, um, you know, one, two, and you've got to guess who it is, isn't it? This is, this is, this is hippie top trump. <laughs> this is really so anyway, so some others suggested by, uh, by the readers. Uh, somebody pointed out that there probably isn't more than one dweezel. No, that would be hard to find. Dweezel, dweezel zapper. Yeah, or a moon yeah. unit. Or a moon unit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you see, I think um, there's probably only one Edwin with a Y. Edwin Collins. It's Edwin Starr. That's not a Y, though. Edwin Starr's got an I. Anybody care to offer an Edwin with a Y? No. I don't think so. Only one Keris. Very good, yep. Keris. Uh, now, somebody has attempted to float the idea that there's only one Crispian, as in Crispian Mills. But, of course, Paul, we know. Crispian St. Peter's. Crispian yeah, St. Peter's. Yeah. Of, uh, of you were on my mind fame. There's only one Devendra, isn't there? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, as far as I'm aware, I think so. Um, Paul Weller got a, a brother called Devendra. He's a member of Sham 69. <laughs> Jimmy, Stig, Kevin, right. Devendra. Devendra on drugs. Um, <laughs> Carlson points out there's probably only one Bevis. The Bevis Frogs. Uh, and yeah. there's only one Link, although Lincoln, Link Ray, Link Ray, Link Ray, Link Ray. but isn't it short for Lincoln? It probably is. And isn't there a, isn't there something called Lincoln Mayorga? There is some that. kind of. There's <laughs> 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 probably the aforesaid Lincoln. There's probably loads of kind of alt country artists yeah, called uh, called Lincoln. Yeah. So and there's and there's probably in fact there's definitely. Uh, so without fear of contradiction, uh, there's only one uh, Ryland. Ryland P. Cooder. But it's a good area, this is, isn't well, it? Why wasn't I born Ryland P. Cooder? Don't you think I'd get a lot more respect? And I think probably you'd be a very successful sly guitar player. I think his father would have had to have been slightly more eccentric than he was to, yes, to, exactly. to, to have called you Ryland. My favourite song was the Norwegian guitarist Ingwie Malmsteen. Yeah, Ingwie Malmsteen. Oh, Ingwie. Is that the correct way of pronouncing it? Uh, I, 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 peppered I, with I extra pronouns. I thought his name has all the musicality that his yeah. music doesn't. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> He should just get up and stay. Ooh, bitch. Mm. So, um, would you care to spell that? Yes, I would. Uh, Y-N-G-W-I-E. 
and then M-A-L-M-S-T-E-N-E-N. See, we miss having Paul in the office. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, for, those, for those ticklish yeah. questions of rock and roll spelling, yeah. he was always the man you could turn to. Uh, but Paul was very, very good on the old subbing front. I can remember Paul warning me when we were, I think, probably at New Musical Express. We used to be on the news desk, do you remember? Yeah. The teasers, <laughs> were it was called, the sign of the three dots. Yes. And he was trying to explain to me uh, the value, legally, of getting things correct. <laughs> he said that that needed explain yeah, that, that hasn't really worked. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still having its uh, rather unfortunate repercussions, which I can't go into in this podcast. I may not but be here next to send me a, an email. Uh, <laughs> no, but I remember you, that you, you said you'd once legendarily worked on a, a publication that to try to spell the word, to describe someone as a therapist or something, and it'd come out as the rapist. Was that right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just come back, I come back from the end of the OPC training course. <laughs> <laughs> this is the classic example they always warn young journalists. Yes, therapist yes, could yeah. be the rapist. In, inappropriate word breaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> therapist. It can be just all as come back to haunt you. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So anyway, Mark, this weekend, what did you yeah. do? I'm probably going to Womad Festival. Is that where you're That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if anyone else went, but it was, a, it, was, it was a wet one. It was a damp one. And if you've already been to one damp one this year... Which, uh, you, which I you have. I went to Glastonbury. Cornbury, however, was lovely. Uh, warm, it was. But, uh, but Glastonbury was wet. And so to arrive... I think the person who summed it up best for me, I went with various old pals. One of them is uh, Robert Sandal, the Sunday Times music critic. An old friend of ours who writes for Word too, and Rob was in a spectacularly bad mood, looking out across this great sort of, you know, great pile of pureed mud, freshly carved up by tractors, and, you know. And I said to him, "Where's the press tent?" And he said, "Past the gun emplacements at Time Cot, right at the ridge and third crater on the left." <laughs> and it was really was like that, you know, that, that image of people. The thing that distresses me most is people pushing buggies. People pushing buggies with their great clagged-up wheels, you know, with small, screamy children in them, uh, in the direction of a tent, uh, looking for entertainment. Because they'd moved it, hadn't they? Why well, they moved it. I thought there was something interesting in that, because one of the highlights for me was meeting the bloke who owned it, because it, it, it struck me on the way back that the number of venues now that are being used, of stately homes, basically, that are being used so for So this was a stately home. Because when I was a kid, there was only Nemworth Park, yeah. which we all understood was a great big stately pile of bricks and had a big lawn, and on the lawn the Rolling Stones were playing. And then there's, uh, you know, Corbury and there's, um, there's Blenheim Palace and the Slade Castle, I think, in Ireland. I think it's Leeds Castle. And Nolesley. Nolesley. You want to move the other Derby's estate. Nolesley, right. And Latitude, I think, is in, uh, which is in Suffolk, I think, is in the grounds of, of Henham Park. Another massive old uh, pile. But anyway, so I'm backstage at this thing, um, talking, to various, talking to Peter Gabriel, in fact, in a little interview with him. And he's this wonderful character, he's marching past, who doesn't seem to fit into the setup at all. Does very, he, very charismatic. Is he wearing moleskin trousers? Very nearly moleskin trousers. <laughs> <laughs> very brave. Yes. <laughs> After Easter. And, uh, and he, he looks like David Attenborough, a tremendously uh, charismatic, rather handsome fellow in his early 70s, wearing sturdy outdoor winter wear, you know. So I go, I go up to this guy and buttonhole and I say, look, I, I have reason to believe you must be the 21st Earl of Suffolk. You didn't say Oh, yeah, he must be the 21st, because I'd, I'd done some research on this fellow. He said, you know, I am. I said, you know, Mark Ellen, you know, in a word magazine and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I said how's it going? So, and you call him Suffolk. So, you call him no, Suffolk? I, I didn't have the nerve, I have to say, but everyone else called <laughs> Is that Suffolk. what you're supposed yeah, to do? Suffolk. Yeah. That's your about. basic he's working... He's called Suffolk. Yeah. I just, I'm he's, amazed. Well, his son's called, I think, Lord Avery or something. His son is who's going to... So that's your basic rule, is it? Yeah, it's called Suffolk. 
But he was absolutely excellent. I said, how's it going? He said, wonderfully well. He said, any problems? The old, the old uh, landing strip's been a bit carved up. And I said, where's your landing strip? He indicated this part of the lawn, which is just like a 150-yard stretch of grass, which, fair enough, I mean, someone had driven an articulated lorry full of twos and probably some of his maytoles across it, you know. <laughs> Maybe that should be falling, most of it. But uh, sort of beyond that, there was a little hangar, and in it was, uh, was a, a Piper Dakota, which is a little four-seater right. aircraft. And, uh, and I was desperately trying to impress him by keeping the... I wanted to keep this conversation going because I was so thrilled. I played my only trump card, which saved a little bill to you. Because you and I have a friend who has a flying licence. She is the daughter of the drummer of Pink Floyd, oh, Chloe Mason. Yes. So I know somebody who's got a licence. I was trying to, try to muscle my way. And I said, Chloe Mason, oh, nothing goes. No, very well. Father's got a marvellous collection of vintage cars. He's also the drummer of the Pink Floyd. Also the drummer of the Pink Floyd, yeah. And then he started talking about this wonderful world of, of people who have uh, flying licences. How they can, can go throw- off and, you know, just go and have tea and tea and I'll get out of Normandy for lunch. Can I just throw in the one interesting fact about Chloe Mason and flying, which still makes me keeps me awake at night. Go on. Chloe, when she went on her first solo flight... Oh, it got lost. Got lost. Yeah. I want you to imagine that, boys. She's You're flying. in the air, and you get lost. Yeah, she was flying... Just think about that. She was heading for Oxford, wasn't she? She, <sighs> she couldn't identify... She hadn't got a map, and she, was, she suddenly noticed a bit of coastline. And rather like, you're trying to remember those old geography lessons at school. She's trying to show me, position her helicopter yes. to see if it looks at all familiar. I think she kept going until the Blackpool Tower arrived or something. She's not going to turn around. I think you're exaggerating <laughs> a bit. But it still makes you think, doesn't it? The idea you can get lost in the air. Sorry, I just oh, have to stop. throw that in. On the basis that with a, with a word podcast, anything can go in the pot. I thought that shouldn't be wasted. Shouldn't be wasted, absolutely. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't one of your favourite music festivals. Oh no, I loved it. I mean, I, I'm a very hardy soul when it comes to the outdoor rock festivals, you know. But uh, I, I, I I I think there's only so much mud and mire that you can take. What's the Womad clientele like? They're not a bit smug, are they, Mark? No, I wouldn't say they're not a bit kind of rootsier than now or anything. No, there's like a big collision between there's two types of people who seem to go to work now. There's the, there's the sort of world music aficionados who are, who are a tremendous bunch and very keen on seeing all the you know, choral players from Marley and stuff. And now it's moved to Charlton Park in Wiltshire and Malmesbury. There's the local um, <laughs> landed gentry on a bender. Right, yes. Who are you know, charging across the field they flooring. Uh, bottles of white wine <laughs> and, uh, and, and buying their little daughters uh, fairy wings and matching t-shirts that say elf and safety uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah so they've got quite a bit of their lovely uh, hunter wellies and things. so it was quite a good crowd of people have you done any of these gigs Paul any of these yeah, uh, this year well yeah. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the outdoor festival you know, I went to Wheelie the same as you did Mark yeah. And I never swore off festivals ever. The ever next after. 30 years. Well, Did that, Wheelie do for you? Yeah, I, I thought it was the most, uh, I thought it was an absolutely awful experience, Wheelie. And, and I, I, after that, I never went back to another one unless I was being paid to go. <laughs> you should explain to people listening, this was 1972, wasn't it? Summer 1972, Wheelie was 71, maybe. Like 71. Yeah, like but just explain who we went to see. Paul and I didn't know each other then, but we were obviously camped. Uh, well, I went, I went to see uh, Mark Ball and, uh, and, uh, and Rod Stewart. Yeah. Um, but I ended up seeing all these people I didn't want to see, like Barkley, James Harvest. <laughs> yeah, Al Stewart and the Groundhogs. I saw them all. Yeah! And those are the ones that Mark had gone to see. I was to see them, yeah. Because when I had him I threw a bottle to Bowler and get the, get the hogs back on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did he have a Ken Pustle Nick t I did, yeah! More drum solo. We did, in fact, play a drum solo for 20 minutes at 3 in the morning. I'm sure you're sure, sure you're welcome by that one. Yeah, I know, yeah, I seem to be asleep whenever anything good was on because you just pass out from exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of 24 hours. It was 24 hours, no curfew. Yeah. Music yeah. went on all night. 
That's right, yeah. But Rothschild kicked footballs at the ground. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was policed by the Hell's Angels. Oh, oh how we missed Essex those days. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. I said, well, this year I went to Knowsley uh, in Liverpool. Uh, and it was the same, same weekend as Glastonbury, so it was equally damp. And again, I thought it was dreadful. I mean, <laughs> James Barton of Cream organised this. And I, you know, it's, it's a worthy venture. He's trying to get a big rock festival going in the northwest of England. So Who were they in Glastonbury? Uh, well, the Who headlining actually they did. Oh yeah, yeah. Nosley on the Saturday before flying down to Glastonbury for the uh, That's Sunday. Right. Uh, but the, the weather was atrocious and everything about it actually. The way that you know, the, you know how the demographic for these festivals is so broad now, uh, particularly the span like the Who uh, headline. Yeah. You've got people probably pushing seventy at the top end, and you've got the children, grandchildren yeah, yeah. right at the other end. And yet the, the the festival is still set up on the premise, same premise maybe as Creamfield. Which was our entire audience made up of seventeen to twenty-three-year-old drug monkeys. <laughs> and we will treat drug them. Monkeys. We will treat and them to exactly the same drug. levels of security and contempt that we treat that audience with. And of course, it just doesn't work with grandparents. No, they get crossed. No. And it certainly doesn't work with parents who take it, who have to see their toddlers' picnics yeah. being confiscated at the gate. Thrown into a bin. Oh, really? Oh, no grandparent likes likes to be put into a half Nelson by now. With no neck. <laughs> in front of their great toil coming out. Oh, leave it, Grandpa. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, I had the poshiest outdoor experience this weekend. It has nothing to do with music. I went to Houghton Hall in North Norfolk, very posh country heights, to see a performance of Twelfth Night in the open air, starring. Stephen Fry. Good Lord, is what? Mel Smith. No. Stephen Fry as Malvolio. No. Mel Smith as Dr. Toby Belch. That's uh, um, uh, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be. Matthew Kelly as Andrew Agnew. Andrew Agnew. Was it an all-star performance? It was an all-star performance. The Royals had been a couple of nights before. And we had champagne in the picture gallery beforehand and all that. You know, It's the least rock and roll thing I've ever been to in my life. So and it was absolutely fantastic. No, but the thing about it, is I, I just think it's really interesting how they can get people to do this for nothing. They're doing it for charity. You know, they're raising money for the Norwich Theatre Royal. Two weeks rehearsal. You know what I mean? That's These people are very big names who can command all the world of money. You know, yeah. they're go, you know, it's actors. They just love having fun, don't they? Yeah. I wonder if the same thing will ever happen with music. Do you think... Do you think they'll ever get around to it? Well, yeah, I mean, they do it for ego and telly nowadays, don't they? You know, but uh, but probably not so much for fun. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Paul, you now, you're referring to uh, the Northwest, and you're spending... You divide your time, I think is the expression, isn't it? Between between the smoke and uh, and Liverpool. Yeah. And... uh, Smoke and the smut. (laughs) <laughs> you make it sound so glamorous <laughs> we're told that you're entirely in charge of Liverpool City of Culture uh, programme uh, I'll, I'll, I'll confirm or deny that next year now I've got a very slight uh, role in, uh, in some of the musical um, aspects of it it's going to be a big gig in May uh, by the docks which will be the centrepiece of it um, who will be playing? Can you reveal? I am not activity to dive. Not that, no, right. Because you don't, don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're waiting to see if he'll so, do it. Two <laughs> members of Rory Storm's Hurricanes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so which, which famous uh, Liverpool musicians are they trying to, you know, are touting for this? No, I, I don't think you'd be surprised by any of the people who've been approached. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so it's Jerry and Spacemakers. Been brilliantly diplomatic, Paul. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I can't answer that, but I will tell you this. Well, well, <laughs> well, I will tell you, we've got a venue called The Pickers, which, is, uh, which will be uh, in full flow in 2008. And last week, um, Elvis Costello came along and played a gig for us. Uh, so um, Elvis... Uh, um, get out of the hole financially. And Pete Townsend, who had been playing at Mosley, gave us uh, £6,000 to install toilets as well. Um, God, Elvis, Elvis was absolutely brilliant. He was with um, uh, Alan Toussaint. You know that? Oh, right, yeah. I've seen them play together. Great, uh, great, Wonderful. Great yeah. album he made last year with uh, Alan Toussaint. So it's Alan Toussaint and his entire Memphis band in this little venue we've got. It's just an old industrial shed near the docks, basically. Uh, but to see Elvis in that kind of setting, you know, he's just these once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. It was just absolutely, absolutely mesmerising, the, the, the whole band there. So that was, um, that was great. And if we can just uh, state a few more things like that next year, that'll make the whole thing worthwhile from my point of view. So what's it supposed to be, loads and loads of gigs, or a few big ones, or what? Uh, well, there'll be one massive gig, and um, they're actually building a new venue, uh, a big um, arena that's being built by the, um, by the docks there. But there'll be lots of gigs on pubs and um, at all levels, up to the arena level. Um, so it should, be, it should be a great year, actually. And how are the locals taking to the idea of being uh, city of culture? With unbridled cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fabulous, we live in Bedley. Never work, mate. You never work. Seriously, is that what they like? Everyone's got their fingers crossed, but there's a, bit of, uh, there's a bit of doubt because there's not been no very firm plans announced. Um, so if there are some very... Um, um, cunning plans, then they're being held close to the council's chest. So it's just a story. Must really I sincerely hope you're trying to revive the, reform the crucial three. Pete Wiley and uh, was it Ian McCulloch and Julian Cope back together again? Wouldn't that be good? Yeah, except they were never actually together in the first. No, one. that was <laughs> one of those things. Completely. It was just written about afterwards. Didn't they? They did play one concert, didn't they? No, I think they just. I think they might have rehearsed in a, in a bedroom or something. That's a good scene. That's a good scene. After all these years. It's a good little scene, isn't it? Bands who only ever rehearsed. Who never got past the rehearsal stage. There's a few of those. I can't think of a few of them. Yeah, the people are at school together and things like that. Just talked about it. Never got around to do it. Oh, well. So we shall shall watch developments with interest. Liverpool City of Culture. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast. A way of life. Don't forget, you should have noted down, I think, already three song titles. Three Rolling Stones song titles. I think I'm right well, saying. We well, have rather clumsily done twice because the second person hadn't realised the first person already done it. So here we are. Okay, well, so I'm sure was, you'll work that out. <laughs> we've had three Rolling Stones song titles already. This is your opportunity to win a, a copy of the biggest bang. Well, we've got to squeeze one more in between now and the end of the podcast. But between now and the end of the podcast, it's traditional at this point of the podcast to have the horror. We're now starting to get requests for horrors, actually, Mark. I've had various people emailing wanting to, wanting to hear the story of you and, uh, and uh, Julian Cope and, uh, and the last time you took drugs. No, right. but you're obviously going to have to go well, you away. You put me on the spot there. I'll have to, no, you're uh, going to work that one up. I'll have to think about that. Work that one up. Work that one up for a future episode. But meanwhile, I'll take advantage of Paul's presence here. Uh, to tap into his rich scene of, uh, of rock and roll memories. Paul, over to you. Right, well, I was just looking at the, uh, the, the, the current um, 
uh, page one fella of uh, the work I he doesn't do many interviews and I always read them very carefully because I've done quite a few with him and I, 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 I sympathise utterly with every interviewer that is, is sent his way you know he's described as being the Gallipoli beach of the <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I thought um, uh, Barry uh, Barry did it, did it for us uh, this month did a, you know, did a tremendous job, Barry being a Belfast boy and so on, yes. he obviously had that in there. So he knows about conflict and tension. Yeah. He? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, he was ready for it. But uh, as you say, Barry can be a cold old. He can be tricky. And was, he was going through one of his tricky phases, one of his several decade-long tricky phases, <laughs> yeah. in, um, in, in, I guess it was the 80s, wasn't it? It was, it was yeah, the 80s. It was. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess it was you, Mark, who, who yeah. put in for uh, the, the, the fan interview, and, and the reply had come back through various um, um, uh, intermediaries. His manager of that particular week. Yeah. Oh, his manager of, yeah. of that week. He said, uh, well, you know, said, will, Van will do an interview, but he's fed up talking to rock journalists, and um, he wants to be ta- he wants to be interviewed by uh, um, his own uh, heroes. And um, so I think you asked him to suggest a few yeah, names, that's right. and. Um, he came back with uh, Spike Milligan, didn't he? He did. So um, I said, we can't get you Roy Hattersley. It's a nice thought. So, uh, so this is all set up, and I have to go. I have, so I, have to, I meet Van in um, in, uh, in a hotel in Kensington, uh, and um, no, I meet his manager. But he takes us around to Van's house. We Holland think, um, Park, probably. Uh, Holland Park. Yeah, it was right. the Hermit of Holland, Holland Park. Holland Park. Cool. He, cool. He, to give him his full title, as you know. <laughs> And, and so we drive down to uh, Spike's house, which is in it's it's in the countryside near Rye. Is that Sussex? Yeah, Sussex, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so a very nice drive down there. It would be if didn't have that much. Sitting in the back seat. <laughs> and he just it was on the it was the early days of mobile phones. He had one of the first mobile phones. You know the the brick style yeah, mobile yeah. phones. And he's on the phone in the back, on the back seat, permanently scolding his record company over there. Yeah, barking. Very shortcomings. <laughs> This, this goes all the way down to, all way down to, uh, to uh, Rye, really nice little market town on a hill, Rye, as I've subsequently discovered. Although I still tremble when I go there because I remember going through with Van Morrison. There's a, little, uh, there's a railway just skirting the edge of the hill and there's a level, old fashioned level crossing. And um, so the manager has to stop at the level crossing to let a train pass the way you do. And Van is outraged by this. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's getting edgy now because he's getting nervous about meeting Spike. What, would he expect the train to pull up and allow Van to drive <laughs> I don't know his way across the track? Van crossing. Yeah, Van crossing. Van reversing. Crusty old crusty old rock curmudgeon yeah, crossing. Yeah. Well, he just that started, he just started giving, giving hell to his manager. He must have expected the manager to be some sort of evil, can evil stunt, you know, yeah. ramps to be set up in front of any level crossing on the journey. So yeah. Zoom over them. So he's furious. He gets out of the car and stomps off, or stomps. You know, Van doesn't sort of walk here. He stomps or stomps or something. Yeah. And he goes off. And uh, of course, once he's gone up the car and up the road, the level crossing opens. So the manager has to drive across. But yeah. Of traffic. Has to go across. Find somewhere to park on the far side of the railway. And of course, Van is now nowhere to be seen. <laughs> Heading, so the, the manager has to, has, to, has to get out of the car. Of course, the level crossing goes down again. Now. And Van's the other side. And there's Van on the other side. <laughs> Furious again. <laughs> <laughs> Gross display of managerial incompetence. <laughs> so, 
So another train goes past. So we have to get uh, Van, Van gets back into the car. We go, we go fi- the final uh, leg to um, Spike Milligan's house. Very nice house that uh, the late Spike had. And Spike uh, with his, uh, his wife. And he's very charming. And, You're very charming. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't particularly a goon fan. I never really found Spike. I just didn't get it. I never really found Spike Milligan funny. But in person, he was really hilarious. Just in, in a natural conversation. Where yeah. doing, not doing silly voices or anything. Just in a... Just to talk to, yeah. he was really funny and um, very interesting, very polite, very hospitable, extremely courteous. Van Morrison was none of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have an, an awkward conversation. Spike to uh, break the ice produces from nowhere a penis-shaped plastic <laughs> nose. Yeah. Always breaks the ice at parties. It does. It? Yeah. it does. Um, you stir the ice with them afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> And then he goes romping off around the lawn, all in an effort to sort of loosen Van up. Uh, all to no avail, really. The yes, yes, yes. yes. Always, we have all to, really strapped to, in front exactly, of his face. Exactly, for want of a better... T- um, yes. so, uh, Trying to cheer up the old commercial. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, so he comes in again, and uh, it doesn't seem to have done Van gets out his big brick of, brick of a mobile phone again. He decides he's got to go into the garden himself now to tell off the record company again. <laughs> And um, so he goes out, so he's got to stomp off into the garden. And Spike takes off the old penis shaped um, uh, false nose and slumps into a chair, a defeated man. (laughs) Broken. And and he turns around and he says, That Van Morrison, you know, he's a really strange bloke. (laughs) 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 But you you know, you think of that, that. Spike has volunteered to have this guy at his house. Yes. He's not doing it, he's not getting paid. No, is he? Out of the kindness of he's not saying, My hero is Van Morrison. One of nature's Van Morrison's saying, Yeah, I really want to meet my lifelong ambition is to meet Spike Billigan. When he gets there, as you say, just radiates the culture. Andrew Harrison, in the word office, had a brilliant expression the other day for people he feels like that. He calls them negatively charged. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Dear old So well, that's the final accolade, isn't it? Being described as a funny sort by Spike Milligan. Yeah, that's the expert, it expert, is. isn't it, really? It's only rock and roll. It's the way it works. Okay, well, look, that's about all we've got time for in this. Uh, this uh, this podcast. Uh, thanks very much for listening. And uh, if you've noted down, as you should have done, four Rolling Stones song titles that have been dropped with spooky, ghostly casuals <laughs> into the hall. <laughs> ghostly aplomb <laughs> that Jeeves would have been proud of. <laughs> they were insinuated into the conversation seamlessly. Um, you should have had them written down, uh, put them on an email, and send them to competition at wordmagazine.co.uk with your full name and address uh, and you might be one of the lucky winners of the Rolling Stones the biggest bang uh, four DVD set we've got five of these to give away uh, further details on the website at wordmagazine.co.uk thanks very much for listening Hurrah. this podcast was brought to you by The Word details at wordmagazine.co.uk